Welcome to the People Star Podcast. We deliver leadership perspectives from industry experts on their people, architecture, routines, and culture as they solve HR's newest challenges. And now your host, Julie Rekin. Good day, Julie Rekin, host of the People Star Podcast. And it is an extreme pleasure today to welcome Tony Perlingeri. He is an extreme leader in HR, has a wealth of background, and is currently the Chief Human Resources Officer and Chief HR Consultant for AWP, best-in-class HR consulting, LLC, out of New York. Tony, you have a lot of background and experience, and I'm super excited to welcome you today. We have an exciting discussion, I think. Welcome. Thank you very much, Julie. I very much appreciate the invitation and the time invested today, and look forward to chatting with you and uh, really talking about everything from soup to nuts about human resources and the business world. Thank you. Cool. So Tony and I have talked about an agenda, and we found three things plus three more things that we think are going to be super relevant, and we're excited to talk about them today. So the first three things, we've got three things we want to talk about, about the state of HR and the types of HR leaders of the past, present, and future, and why we think these three types of leaders are so important to talk about and three kinds that there are today. Um, And Tony, you outlined these three for me, and I'm really excited to hear you tell this story about the three types of HR leaders that exist and why you think one of them is the most relevant kind of leader today. Very good. Happy to share. And and, uh, what I'll be happy to do is maybe talk about the evolution of human resources over my last 25 years of being in the profession and um, working for so many diverse industry companies and global organizations over that period of time. So I'll be more than happy to share that with you. Let's do it. So Three types of of HR leaders. How do you see it? So I hate to use the expression, but maybe we start off with back in the day. So back in the day, um, human resources was originally called personnel, which means I'm really dating myself a bit. This was a long time ago. But, you know, the personnel leader or the personnel executive was really somebody who, you know, helped to support the organization. I think that very often companies weren't exactly sure where, quote, personnel needed to report into. Sometimes it reported into finance, sometimes it reported into legal, but the reality is it was a necessary and important component of the business. But I think it was really much more focused on maybe we do some recruiting, maybe we do some policy administration, such as employee handbooks and you know benefit administration and benefit design. Back in those days, we didn't call it L&D. We didn't call it learning and development. It was just training. Um, and training, of course, was, you know, very basic classroom training, um, and it was very, very different. And then fast forward, I think then we moved into the world of human resources and what I would call strategic business partners. These are really human resources, business partners, and leaders who work for organizations who are very much an integral part of the business, who uh, partner closely with their clients each and every day, whether it's on talent acquisition, whether it's on L&D, whether it's about performance management, employee relations or whatever the important cultural uh, objectives and issues are of an organization. Sometimes, however, some of those strategic business partners, sometimes maybe due to no fault of their own because they haven't had maybe a broader background, I think that's kind of where it kind of starts and maybe finishes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but they may not necessarily have had the opportunity either to work for some, you know, really fast forward, progressively thinking strong strategic vision types of CEOs and C-suite folks 
who you know really would have taught them a lot more about the business. My experience is an example because I've worked for five or six different industries in my career. It's really given me a much more robust background in a variety of different industries. So that has made me a much better business person. So I understand retail. I understand management consulting. I understand manufacturing, supply chain, distribution, um, and everything that has to do with operations. And when you have those kinds of experiences in a variety of different industries, it automatically elevates you to a different level. And I'm not talking about title. I'm talking about your really your institutional knowledge about the business and really about what, what it is to take, you know, to understand what's going on in the company. When you've had the opportunity within human resources to participate in things like re-engineering and organizational development, as well as mergers and acquisition, and really looking, you know, identifying and integrating large and smaller businesses and coming to all together, it really changes the platform and the profile of your background because your experience really becomes a lot broader. In addition, most good strategic business partners typically always want to report directly to the CEO. And part of the reason for that is that we want to be obviously recognized as a key component and a key member of the team from a strategy perspective. It's not just about the tactical work, and every company has tactical work that needs to get done. Hence, that really leads me to the third level or the third person, which is really the human resources leader who happens to work, excuse me, the business leader, I apologize, the business leader who happens to work in human resources. And there is a difference. Those are the folks, we are the folks who typically understand the PL. We understand what it really means when companies go through consolidation, organizational development, succession planning, looking at the high potentials of an organization, focusing on the employee engagement. What are the turnover metrics? What does that look like? I want to spend a moment, if I may, Julie, talking about attrition. Every company has it, and it's at different levels. Okay. So attrition to me. It's really about focusing on how to be able to look at what's important, what's the pulse of the employee organization in terms of how are we not only winning the hearts and minds of our employees, but how are we also retaining them? It's a different world that we live in today, not just for Generation X and Generation Y and the millennials. You really need to understand what makes it tick within your organization. So while I happen to be a great advocate and supporter of employee surveys, I also think if companies do employee surveys, they have to be prepared to be able to analyze what the results are and take action and create a solution, whether that be from a cost perspective or a strategy perspective. Otherwise, poll surveys can absolutely backfire because then employees feel like, well, we took the survey, nothing came of it, it was a complete waste of my time. Going back to attrition, and we've talked about this a lot throughout my career, let's say an organization happens to have 30% turnover as an example. Okay, well, that's an important number. And also, of course, how does that impact the P&L from a cost perspective? But we have to take it a step further. What does the 30% actually mean? One, where is it coming from? Is it coming from a specific location? Is it coming from a specific department? Is it coming from a specific leader? These are all things that are critical to analyze as well as conducting exit interviews that are going to be fruitful and beneficial to the organization from a lessons learned perspective. What are those things that we've learned from a percentage perspective? Okay, so now we've learned it's coming from a location or department or a specific leader. It's not about certainly beating up the leader because they're having heavy turnover. It's really taking a scale back and peeling back the onion and understanding 
what partnership, what coaching, what training, what support can we give to that leader so that this way they can be set up for success so that we can reduce their turnover and make the employees that much happier. Conversely, let's also take a look at the managers or leaders of the company that have a very low turnover rate or a location that there is a very low turnover rate. What are some of the best practices? Like what, what are those managers, what are those leaders doing that really wants to connect to with their employees that keeps their turnover low? So between looking at the turnover analysis and understanding the percentages and what we could do to help the people that maybe are challenged by some of the turnover, let's also ingratiate and integrate some of the wonderful things that some of our leaders are doing and then help teach them from a coaching perspective and do some, you know, what I call bonding and coaching so that there's some really nice activity at the leadership level or middle management level to help people set up for success. So I hope that describes to you how I see human resources, how it's evolved over the last 25 years, but also the various kinds of folks. And I think every human resources business partner or leader has a very different role in their organization. One of the things that I'm always very concerned about from my colleagues in human resources, and I hear this a lot, is, you know, I think that there are folks who absolutely are very much an integral part of the business and very much embraced by the leadership team. But I very often hear about, like, I don't always feel like my voice is always being heard. I don't feel like I'm fighting, or I feel like I'm fighting for a seat at the table. And my response always is the same. If you have to fight to feel like you need to be have a seat at the table, you're in the wrong organization. Clearly, they don't embrace human resources as a strategic leader that you need to be, want to be, and have to be in that particular organization, which means they're really viewing human resources as either just a strategic business partner or, I hate to use the expression, personnel. So I think it's really critical that people understand that before they join an organization as an HR leader, some of those things, that foundation has to be addressed during the interviewing process. Like, what is your culture? How do you view human resources? What do you expect from the person that's in this particular job? The CEO and C-suite folks and people who are going to be your teammates, they really need to have to address the question in the way that satisfies you to make sure that you're joining the right organization. If not you're going to have a lot of frustration because it's going to be an uphill climb because that means that if you don't feel like you are have a voice or you feel that you don't have a seat at the table, that expression of I want to feel like I have a seat at the table is so archaic and so old-fashioned. And the fact is we don't talk about those things anymore. It should be automatic. So I hope that helps. That was fantastic. So I love the evolution, Tony, that you're talking about, about the three types of leaders in HR going from personnel, employee handbooks and policies into strategic business partners into the third type, which is hopefully today, which is business leaders that happen to work in HR who understand the PNL and the and the culture of an organization and all of those components. So knowing that and seeing your experience. I was hoping to talk to ask you for three stories today. Maybe, um, and I'll just kind of outline what these stories are. And Tony, if you could give us these three stories um, just from your seat, I think we'd all be super interested in hearing your voice on it. So maybe a story on the State of the Union. What are you seeing in the State of the Union in HR today? And the second story might be, we've all experienced attrition and resignation and rehiring in this market as a part of where we are. What have you seen? Employees seem to have the upper hand Let's just talk about what have you seen that's interesting to you? Do you have any stories around that? And then the third one might be employers. What are employers doing in response? Have you seen anything creative that employers have done in response to today's market? So those are the three questions. 
And I'm super excited to hear anything that you might have experienced in these three areas. Let's start with the first one. Can you just talk to us about the state of HR in in today's market? What do you see? Sure. Well, I I think I can maybe give you uh, maybe a few different perspectives. Um, One, because I do have a fairly large network and I speak with a lot of my HR colleagues either that I've met through the years through networking meetings where I've worked with. I typically hear a lot of this, and I don't necessarily know if this is just maybe just a very myopic view towards HR, but maybe the marketplace in general. But I can tell you this, you know, one of the beauties of when an executive recruiter, regardless of what level they're at, is partnering with a human resources leader for an opportunity, and they are representing them to a company, is that if they're truly strategic and smart, regardless of the outcome of those interviews, they're going to want to know that they can build a really good relationship with that HR professional because that HR professional is always going to remember that particular recruiter, how they were partnering with them, how they were supporting them, how they were coaching with them, and ultimately, of course, demonstrating a level of respect and being really an ombudsman between themselves and the company that they're representing the candidate with. Unfortunately, that does not always happen. And what I've been seeing really more over the past two years during our time of pandemic is that I think there's been a real breakdown about how not all, but some executive recruiters are both treating human resources leaders and professionals in general through what I call ghosting situations, no follow-up. I mean, the reality is those candidates are going to have a memory once they either become employed or become gained respect and there was truly a partnership so that when they're doing recruiting for their company, they're going to want to remember that particular individual and know that there was a level of respect and partnership that took place to continue the relationship. So that's one piece I do want to say because I hear this almost every single week. I hear some new story, which completely, you know, doesn't surprise me, but it's just really very unfortunate. That said, I do believe that not every candidate, regardless of whether you're in HR or you're in other functional areas, are going to be the perfect fit for every organization. But it is the delivery and how everyone is treated is absolutely critical because even if someone does not land a position or they're not the right fit for an organization, and I use the word fit loosely because I think everybody's got a definition of what fit means, I think it's important still to turn that process into a coaching opportunity for people so that they get feedback so that they're in a better position to interview maybe a lot better or differently with a different organization. So very often, we all hear, you know, whether a company interviews a candidate or a recruiter interviews and we get the feedback from the company, they'll say, well, gee, I understand I'm not getting the job or I'm not, not moving forward. Is there anything you could share with me that I can learn from that I can benefit? And what we normally get is nothing. So I think that there's a fear, whether from a company or recruiter to give very constructive feedback so that people can learn from that. You know, in the, in the litigious world in which we live in, I think people are very concerned about what they say and who they say it to. But on occasion, I would say the minority of folks will provide that kind of constructive feedback. I do that all the time because I'm looking to have long-term relationships with people, whether it's for this job, another job, 
I'm working for a company or whatever it is I'm doing. Those are things that people remember. And very often that kind of constructive feedback that is given to somebody during the course of an interview process, regardless of what the outcome is, is usually very beneficial and will help them in preparing them for their next opportunity. So while I didn't mean to go off on that, I can tell you that this is a real concern for me as as a senior HR leader and as somebody who does a tremendous amount of recruiting as part of their world and been on the receiving end as well. I don't think that people are getting really positive, constructive feedback to help them or to get any feedback at all. In a lot of cases, people are getting ghosted. It is the number one disrespectful thing that I hear from people all the time. I've even heard of situations where companies have interviewed a candidate and they said they're ready to make an offer and the candidate never hears from them again. Like, how can that happen? We all recognize there could be budgetary concerns. Okay. The organization is reorganizing. Okay. Maybe the organization is downsizing. Okay. But communicate, at least say something as opposed to nothing at all. So I hope that helps, Julie, at least from from an HR perspective. Um, I think it is really, and then the last piece kind of reflects back to my earlier comment, Julie, which is, I think from an HR, HR leadership perspective, you need to really know who you are as an HR professional. What is it that you feel is a gap in your background? Where do you think you need to continue to evolve and learn? And then when you take your next job, Make sure that it's a position that will continue to stimulate you, where you can evolve and grow and learn something from it, because maybe you didn't have it in your previous position or position prior to that. And if you're still struggling previously with the seat at the table comment, then clearly you want to work for a company that's not like that. Super interesting. That is a really interesting commentary on, on the state of the union, especially in a tough recruiting market. So that's awesome. Thank you for that story. Okay. Two more stories, Tony. Tell me a story, something that you may have seen. You can feel free to redact a name <laughs> if, it, if you need to. Just thinking about employees right now have, um, we've talked about this, attrition. They've got the upper hand in terms of where do they want to go? What are they looking for? Tell us what you've seen. Have you seen anything interesting from the employee's perspective in terms of what employees want or need in today's market? Sure. Um, I think I can actually dissect that in a couple of different ways for you, Julie. First, I want to start with the technology world. I don't think that this will come as a surprise to you or anybody that's listening to this. The number one area that every company is challenged in both attraction and retention is technology, folks. The technology industry has been so overly inflated over the past year to year and a half and continues to be so that I can tell you that anybody that is in a tech role is being recruited and hate to use the expression, but headhunted by other organizations or by executive recruiters for like literally 30 to 40% above the market. So it's really happening. So just to give you a sense of things without you know, narrowing it down to just titles. So UX designers, software engineers, front-end and back-end developers, software architects, CTOs, chief information officers, data analysts, data engineers, and I'm just naming a few areas. We all know that every organization has just to have has to have a certain level of technology. So I would say, well, I happen to be an advocate from a recruitment perspective. I think that job postings are okay. I think it's great for branding and it's great for marketing of a company, but you're not going to find technology people or some of the more difficult positions just through postings. You're going to have to go aggressively, tenaciously after passive candidates who are not necessarily in the market 
and go after them very aggressively to pull them out of an organization to be bringing them to your organization. Because if we're just going to sit there and wait for postings, the jobs are going to be open for months. And because the market has been so inflated, much of the technology folks, as well as a lot of professionals, are sitting tight with their current organizations because they're either doing very, very well or they're waiting for their bonus or because of the pandemic, there's some nervousness. I can share that with you. There is stuff because I've heard this from a number of candidates that I've recruited. You know, I'm really interested in the job, Tony, but I'm a little bit nervous that if I leave, even though I don't like my job anymore or I'm not stimulated or I'm not learning, if I go to this opportunity that you're talking about, I'm concerned that I could be you know, last one in and first one out if there's a reorganization or there's a layoff. So I think that they're in the marketplace, whether it's technology or otherwise. I do think that there are employees who may not necessarily be thrilled about what they're doing, but they're sitting tight in their current organization. One, because it's now year end, so some companies are paying bonuses out if they pay bonus. But another case, because I think there's such a concern about, hey, I know what I have here and kind of the devil I know versus the devil I don't know. I'm going to continue to stay here um, and maintain what I have now, even though I'm not thrilled. And then there's a second piece, which I think is really important. I think we saw a lot of this during the pandemic, but it's still happening. Some people, some employees accept jobs for paycheck, not for a career. You have to know when you take accepting a position, which job is it for you? Some people have to take a job because they have to pay their bills and they have to live their life. And there's no criticism to that. So as a result, it's the paycheck. There are another group of folks who would only look to make a change because they think that the opportunity that's being presented to themselves could be an opportunity for career development, whether it's new technology, new evolution, uh, leadership, whatever. And generally, that person is somebody that's working for a company that has little or no career pathing or succession planning, and no one has actually sat down with them and tell them what their future is all about. So I do think that onboarding is absolutely critical to the, the hiring piece for every new organization, every new employee that joins the organization. People need to know the moment they get walking the door all about, but hey, I want to let you know our company is very supportive of career pathing, succession planning, and your manager is going to be talking a little bit about what those career path opportunities could look like when you're with the company for, you know, for a period of time. So I hope those perspectives at least answer the second question. I, I cannot express enough how much that resonated with me personally and our organization all of the um, all of the things that you talked about in terms of employees and some of the technical roles that are out there I was both crossing my eyes clapping my hands and crying simultaneously <laughs> just echoing your sentiments yes we've experienced this and I think that's I think it's universal so really resonated and that's super helpful I love that story okay last story Tony tell me about employers. What have you seen that's created from an employer perspective in response to today's market? Have you seen anything interesting happening? Yeah, this piece I don't think is going to come really as a surprise to anybody that's listening to this. You know, what we learned in the last two years is that we know that working virtually, working hybrid, working remotely, whatever words you want to use, can be done and can be done successfully. We do know that. I do think that there were organizations that were much more traditional in nature that didn't believe um, in working virtually. They viewed it as an inconvenience, a nuisance. If somebody's working from home, it should be to the benefit of just our top performers, not necessarily the rest of the organization. Oh, and how do we know that if they're working from home um, or working remotely? How do we know? How do we measure their performance success? How do we know that they're meeting our KPIs? How do we know? 
that they're not, you know, wasting time and, you know, they're really not focusing on the job. These are all the things that I think traditionally we're going around in, you know, senior level people's heads about why it just doesn't work. Well, it was thrusted on us, like it or not, it was thrusted on us. And we have certainly demonstrated that we know that it can successfully be done. And going back to your question, um, I think that more organizations are slowly emerging more toward, I would say, the hybrid approach. I think that a balance of working in an office where people are able to recreate synergistic relationships with each other, team relationships with each other, is very much something that has been coveted. I can tell you, I live in New York. There are thousands of people, thousands of people that are single, living in a one-bed apartment or studio apartment. And during this crisis, unfortunately, what they saw on their computer. So the fact is, now that they have the opportunity maybe to come to an office a couple of days a week, that was prior to maybe this last week or two when things have kind of escalated a little bit. But having the opportunity of having a balance of both, um, I will tell you that the companies that I'm supporting, since I'm supporting four or five companies, that most of the organizations have now moved more towards the hybrid approach because they do believe in having some office time with each other, spending time. I can tell you the last two years, there were thousands of companies that people, you know, accepted a job. They were working for an organization for a year or two, and they never met their teammates ever. The only way they met them is this way, right? So now, you know, so the fact that they had that opportunity to engage in that, I think is, was really positive. I want to talk about some maybe creative things. So I will tell you that commuter benefits has been a major plus. A lot of uh, companies have instituted commuter benefits regardless of where they're operational, where their office happens to be. Um, it's encouraging people to come back to the office because that was one of the things that, you know, people said, well, you know, now that I've been doing it, it's a, it's a far greater cost. And, you know, you could, in theory, either from an HR or business perspective, say, well, why should we have to do commuter benefits? This is what condition of their employment. You know, we didn't, we didn't say that you needed to work from home. We said you need to be working in the office, right? But the reality is, is that I think more companies today are, in fact, enlisting in com- commuter benefits, which I think has been very helpful to reduce some of the cost and really encouraging people to come back to the office, whether that be by car, whether it be by transportation, mass transportation, you know, train, bus, boat, you know, whatever, however it is, you know, to, to get to the office. I think that there has also been some other interesting things, and I think we talked about this a little bit before. There are two things that I think have to happen for employees from a retention perspective. One, I do think that the first 90 days to six months when people join a company, there has to be a, a pulse follow-up. Both human resources and the leaders have to sit down, and I'm not talking just whether it's virtually or in person, and sit down and kind of get a pulse, like, how are things going? You know, you've been with us for 60 days now. You've been with us for 90 days now. Um, you know, are you getting enough from your manager? Or if it's, you know, if, if it's an HR person, tell us about the culture. Are you assimilating well to the culture? Are you having any challenges? How are things going with your teammates? How is it going with your manager? These are all things. It's the opposite of the exit interview, right? I think it's really critical because, you know, they've joined the organization now. We'd like to make sure that their expectation of what they thought the job was and the culture is being met. And if it hasn't been met, what do we need to do? What do we need to hear to work on them? So I do think the first 90 days to six months, I think is really, really critical, especially in the early phases of an employee's tenure. Conversely, I'm a very strong advocate of town hall meetings, whether that be virtually or in person. I'm a very strong advocate of focus group meetings. So, you know, you could sit there and say, you know, you could do a lot of those stay conversations in the great resignation of this world. But if you're having regular focus group meetings, whether they be monthly or quarterly, 
that is as good, if not better, than doing an employee survey because what you're really doing is you're putting people together in a room, usually facilitated by an HR leader and maybe one senior person. It could be the CEO, it could be a COO, it could be someone senior. And we're talking about, and then before the meetings occur, you're soliciting from the employees, what are some of the things you'd like to hear about and talk about? But also the company comes with an agenda too of maybe three or four key questions about things. And then there's a, you know, for lack of other words, it's a little bit old term, but then there's a wrap session for, you know, you know, for an hour to maybe an hour and a half. And then we start to listen about the things that are really going on with employees and things are important, such as um, one of the things that I did in my previous career, but we did it in classroom, but now it's being done in some companies, lunch and learns. It's a nice way, right? It's a little, it may sound a little bit old fashioned, but it's a nice way to engage people if they can't be in the office virtually so that this way, maybe, you know, maybe once a month or twice a month, there's a specific topic that employees can actually listen to. And there's maybe a subject matter expert, whether that be internally or externally, that's brought in to talk to your employees. And then you have an open forum about whatever the topic is, and then you throw it out into a Q&A. This breaks up the workday really nicely for employees. It keeps them engaged. You can see them. They can see you. You can have some fun and some humor because the reality is, is, you know, whether it's eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day on a computer, there's only so much you can get from that, you know, talking, right? So you you kind of, for lack of other words, got to break up the Yankees a little bit, right? I think it's really important. So these are some of the things that I think are important, but I do think lunch and learns. I do think that focus group meetings, I think are really, really critical to not just help with retention and engaging employees, but it sets the tone for your culture. And it also makes the company that much more fun to work for. You know, you could do things like, okay, we're having a virtual happy hour. Okay. You know, I'm not uh, adverse to that. You know, everybody has a drink at five o'clock on a Thursday. That's okay. We're all getting together socially fine, but there's only so far you could do it in a, in a virtual setting. You know, going back to the office and one of the days that they come back, they do have a, like a happy hour kind of a thing where, They have a food thing. A lot of food industry companies have like a food thing. You know, they create these recipes and everybody participates in tasting it, that kind of a thing. But, you know, you could do it in a lot of other companies, even if it's not a food company. So um, I I feel like I've kind of blabbered away a little bit, but I I hope this has been insightful. Oh, my gosh. This is a goldmine. I can't wait to give our our listeners um, a recap and some of the lists of ideas that you've shared and some of the stories. Tony, this has been super helpful about the state of the HR industry, and your experience has really played well in terms of providing an overview for our listeners about some things they can do, things they can think about, and some of the changes in HR. This has been amazing. I've had a good time. Thank you. I'm really glad that you had a good time, and I'll, I'll leave off this final comment. If you're not having fun enjoying what you're doing, get out of it and do something else. <laughs> okay. That's a great piece of advice. Tony, I hope things are well in New York. I want to wish you a happy new year and very grateful for the time you've spent with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the People Star Podcast. For the show notes, transcript, resources, and more ways to get a seat at the table, visit us at trackstar.com slash podcast.